Um, some, some of you have uh, seen him maybe yesterday at the conference that we organized in multimedia as he, where he participated uh, with a musical um, intermezzos he played. He's also a jazz saxophonist. And uh, Noah and I, we know each other like 15 years, something like that. Um, the way we met each other was uh, quite uh, interesting. Um, uh, that time I was living in New York. Noah is a publisher of an online, online art magazine called White Hot Magazine. And uh, we connected because uh, I was curating activities and exhibitions in, uh, in New York and Los Angeles. And somehow we <coughs> exchanged emails and we decided to uh, launch his magazine, uh, um, White Hot Magazine, in New York, in the Lower East Side, uh, in the form of a festival, uh, the White Hot Magazine Festival. And um, this is how we, for the first time, cooperated uh, with each other, which was quite successful. The magazine uh, received a good uh, feedback, and it sort of um, <coughs> resulted in uh, more activities that we did together in the context of White Hot Magazine. Uh, for instance, we were invited to NADA, uh, Miami, uh, so Art Basel, Miami Beach, New Art Dealers Alliance, uh, art fair where we had a, a booth with the magazine uh, presenting an online magazine, which was quite uh, fun to do so. And uh, Noah is, um, <coughs> as you can see, also an artist, a uh, self-taught artist, as you will explain probably. And uh, we have been in contact for all along the way. Two years ago, Wojciech and I were traveling in the United States. We went to New York and we met up with Noah. And that's sort of like where the idea came from to invite him to come to Pilsen to get to know our faculty. Then COVID happened, obviously. Um, and uh, nonetheless, we didn't forget about him. So uh, the invitation was just pending and we made it uh, come uh, into reality uh, in, in this period of time, coinciding at the same time with uh, the visit of Yael, uh, Kohan, Adi and Ethan and Daniel who left this morning. So we have like a bit of a, let's say, a week of international visitors. Noah has been, as I said, uh, working in this space for uh, two weeks, a week and a half, uh, on uh, new paintings that are exhibit, exhibited here. And uh, some of his previous, previous work are these drawings that we installed uh, here on the wall. And so uh, today is actually the, the, the opening of his presentation, exhibition, the studio of Noah Becker. And uh, of course, we want to know from Noah what, uh, where he comes from, how did he come to uh, being a publisher of a, an online art magazine, how he comes to communicate with uh, Anna Delvey or Anna Sorokina in prison, and what he knows about uh, NFTs, because he's also active in that field. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to give you an overview of my personal history as opposed to going too much into ideas about the paintings and drawings that I've made at the residency over the last several weeks. 
I have an explanation for that later, but I was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1970. I'm 51 years old, and um, my parents at a certain point decided that they were dissatisfied with living in the United States at that time, and so they bought what you call an Airstream trailer and put uh, both of my brother and I and our two dogs into the trailer and headed west with a group of people um, who were, it was actually a family um, that was in the business of making cardboard chairs that fold out from a piece of cardboard. So they had created almost kind of a caravan with another family to leave Cleveland, Ohio and head west. And um, eventually the caravan kind of split apart. Our family kind of went its own way from the other family and we continued west and we got to Carmel, California. And they looked at land in Carmel, California. They were thinking about moving to um, that area. So they had several uh, large acreage. My father was um, working in uh, a kind of a uh, organization that would take things like factories and disassemble them and sell off the parts wholesale. That was his job, and and he had made enough money in that at that time that he was able to just kind of leave his job, kind of retire at around the age of 35, and and travel west in a kind of a no unknown destination sort of way, but hopefully trying to find a better world, a new a new world that was. Um, more appealing to raising the children and and they had envisioned the idea of building a, building a house, building on a property, creating a, a new environment. So they were nomadic in that way and they um, started out on this adventure and they ended up in um, uh, Carmel, California for a short period of time but then um, continued further west and decided that they would at least have a look at what was going on in Canada at that time. So they ended up in Western Canada, British Columbia, and um, my father took an airplane over the Gulf Islands and saw this island where the clouds had kind of parted over a certain area of the island. And um, they realized that the weather pattern in that area was such that they should go and look at property there because that area looked like it was just never cloudy. So that, that property ended up being on a place called Thetis Island. And they ended up buying 40 acres of land on Thetis Island, um, clearing one part of the land was on the top of this mountain and they kind of leveled off the top of this mountain and they created a circular driveway that went up through the trees to the top of the mountain and then we had like a chicken coop, horses, um, sheep and two cats 
to accompany the two dogs. And that was where we kind of settled. That's, that's where I started um, painting and drawing and playing the saxophone. Um, sometimes I would play the saxophone in the woods because it was just kind of an interesting sound and it did end up bothering the neighbors. But um, the, um, so that was, that was like where we ended up. I was going to the one-room schoolhouse there and then um, we decided that the teacher was not suitable to teach the kids because she was, at that time, I didn't realize it, but she was almost kind of like a conceptual artist. She, at one point, her last name was Mrs. Brown, and then eventually she changed her name to Mrs. Blue. <laughs> but she, I went out behind the school one day and I found a chair in the woods and I broke it into all these pieces. And she got really angry because she was trying to impress upon me that chairs have feelings. Um, and so I think she had a mild case of what they call objectum sexuality, which is like being attracted to inanimate objects, you know, like that woman that married the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, in any case, she was, she was kind of like one day it snowed and the kids came in and she said, your assignment today is playing in a winter wonderland. So it was just kind of the children were not really being taught properly at the school. So as a result, my parents decided that I would be home, my brother and I would be homeschooled. So we were doing correspondence school at that time. Obviously, there was no internet. So we were getting um, school papers sent through the mail, and then we would complete them and send them back. But what it ended up doing is it ended up freeing up the family even further. And after we had built this large house and property and farm in Canada, we decided we were, well, they, they wanted to go to Las Vegas. So, and they wanted to go to Mexico. So there, and they also had this idea that the children would be too sheltered if we were just, because my friends were like loggers and kind of fishermen and remote people out in the Gulf Islands. Um, it's like, an, Thetis Island is the island we were on. It's like um, six miles long and three miles wide and had a population of 250 people. So it, um, the, the people there were not really that, um, they were interesting, but my parents felt that we would be sh too sheltered if we grew up there without going anywhere else. So, and they also had a, um, a gambling addiction. So they <laughs> decided we would move to Las Vegas part of the year, and then part of the year we would move to Mexico and just let our neighbors look after our house or live in our house on the island. And, um, I don't know if it's a gambling addiction, but they definitely like to gamble all the time. So um, in any case, so we ended, we ended up going to Mexico for part of the year for like three months to a resort. And at that resort, um, the resort was called, it's still there, it's called Rancho La Puerta. And at the resort, there were a lot of Hollywood celebrities 
that I came in contact with for the first time because I was coming from the island and it was very, very sheltered. So like Calvin Klein was at the resort. Um, uh, Linda Lovelace from the movie Deep Throat was friends with my parents. Um, Richard Widmark, David, I, I had an interaction with David Carradine, the guy from Kung Fu, because he was living at the resort. Um, and um, so this is just kind of like some thoughts on like some of the things that influenced me growing up, um, which I think is applicable to the kind of art that I make and the kind of publishing that I do and the kind of lifestyle that I personally lead. Um, so then after a certain point, we were going back and forth between Mexico, Las Vegas, and Western Canada. And then um, in Las Vegas, I started uh, studying the saxophone. And I was doing some art in Las Vegas. But what ended up happening is my parents would gamble, and I wasn't allowed in the casino. So I would either go to the arcade and play the arcade games, or I would just kind of um, uh, loiter around the lobby of the casino. We were living in a place called Circus Circus Hotel and Casino at one point, and it's like it's a clown-themed casino. Uh, um, so I remember growing up in a, um, I was in a red carpeted hotel room with velvet paintings of clowns all over the wall. Um, and I remember watching the inauguration of Ronald Reagan on the television in this hotel room full of clown paintings with red carpet and red walls. It was very, very surreal. Um, and um, in the lobby of the hotel, there was a huge group of artists that they had hired to do portraits of people in the lobby of the hotel. So people would sit down and, and they would uh, draw their portraits in pastel. And I specifically remember just sitting there for hours watching them and they were, they were really good and, they, and they, would, they would put like blue highlights in people's hair if they had black hair or whatever. And they could make a perfect portrait of anybody in a matter of 20 minutes. And, um, so I remember watching them a lot because I didn't have anything to do while my parents were gambling. And then um, our house on Thetis Island was still there and we moved back into it. And um, one day I was camping on an island nearby and the house burned down. We had a house fire. So the, the kind of idyllic dream of this new land that we had propagated or whatever, and the paradise that we had built was just burned in, in a matter of hours on the island. And then it was a transitional moment with my family where we had to figure out whether we wanted to stay on the island or move into the local city, Victoria, and pick up there after this house fire. There was some issues with insurance. There was a lot of money and a lot of property that was lost. And it was a financial um, crisis for my parents, who had mostly spent a lot of money on traveling places and, and different, different things that 
were happening over the years. They had property that they were selling in, in different aspects. But the, the house fire itself was a financial crisis for the family, and we had to figure out where we were going to go. So we ended up living in a, tra on a, tra in a trailer on the site of the burnt-out property for several years. But then simultaneously, I started to take the bus into Victoria, which is a city uh, that you had to go by ferry. And then it was like about an hour and a half on the bus to get into Victoria. And I would stay at somebody's house and I would go to art school there. I enrolled in Victoria College of Art, which was an unaccredited art and design school. My initial uh, idea with Victoria College of Art, I told them that I wanted to be a cartoonist which I did. I wanted to draw Marvel comics. I wanted to be syndicated as a, either a cartoonist or a comic book illustrator. And I thought that if I enrolled in art school that I could improve my drawing skills enough to be a, a Marvel comics artist because then I could draw the figure and I could do something representational. So a lot of my early work was in pen and ink and was um, patterned after Marvel comic books, book artists and Mad Magazine and different influences from illustrations and that sort of thing. Painting wasn't something that I was initially doing. Uh, I went, started going to art school when I was 15. They sort of let me in under special circumstances to draw the model and um, I developed drawing skills, but it took a while. I really sucked at first, and then after a certain point, something happened, and I really caught on, and I was really virtuosic with drawing. For some reason, something clicked. And I won a national competition for my, well, I got second place in a national competition for my drawing, but it was, um, I went to the capital of Canada and got an award from a famous Canadian artist named Alex Colville for my drawings. And then, um, so this was the transitional period from traveling to Las Vegas and Mexico a lot and then having the house fire, living on the site of the house fire, and then uh, traveling to art school in uh, Victoria. And then we sold the property on the island. When we moved into Victoria entirely and were able to live at uh, my saxophone teacher's condominium. Um, in Victoria. And uh, I continued to go to Victoria College of Art, take paint, uh, taking painting and drawing. And I had a keen interest in the old masters and kind of a dogmatic feeling that modern art or contemporary art was not really worthy of my aspirations. Although I did remember liking Early Jackson Pollock paintings, I remember liking Rothko, and then I, I got a, a huge um, fascination with Francis Bacon for many years, and uh, Velazquez, and a number of other old masters, and spent a period of time really, really studying all of the literature and paintings of the old masters to the point where I really knew that uh, knew about that stuff. Um, I had only finished my formal education um, up until grade three because when we went to Las Vegas, um, 
we just, they were gambling and I was loitering around the casino and doing different things and we just dropped, basically just dropped out of school entirely. So I had the challenge of dealing with um, an incomplete formal education and a looming um, uh, complex that I was in some way um, uneducated which in a lot of ways I was, and in a lot of ways I still am completely uneducated in certain areas that someone who maybe goes to a formal school um, would. But then in other areas I've, I've completed different uh, college courses and later on had to re-educate myself. My brother also had to re-educate himself and now he's a medical doctor. Um, that's a, another story. He was a concert pianist, uh, but now he's a concert pianist that's a medical doctor. Um, so we went through that phase, and I started playing saxophone professionally around Victoria. I met a number of jazz musicians in that area, and they were enthusiastic about moving to New York and performing on the jazz scene in New York. And I was enthusiastic about that as well. But what I also wanted to do was get involved in the art scene in New York because I had all of these visions of how exciting it would be to be uh, a famous New York painter, jazz musician. Uh, and so I kind of had stars in my eyes for the idea that New York was the promised land and that if I could get there somehow, I could demarginalize myself and enter art history in a way that was not kind of boring, but almost kind of um, exciting in a, in a way that the pop, that I like the abstract expressionists were exciting, or the pop artists, or Basquiat and his story, and just that whole image of New York was very seductive to me in my 20s. So by the time I was 27, I ended up um, going to New York and playing on the jazz scene there from like 1997 to 2001. And then 9-11 happened. And while I was in New York before 9-11, I was also working as an artist assistant. Um, I was working for David Sally. I worked for Mark Costabi at Costabi World. I worked for Attila Richard Lucas, who's a well-known Canadian painter and a number of other people. I worked as, an, as a, a gallery intern and basically swept floors and did very like the lowest possible um, role that anybody could have in the gallery system in New York. And what my intention was, was to uh, become a famous artist and get a big gallery representing me. And that was the only entry point into the art world that I could really see at that point in my life in New York. I didn't really, I couldn't figure out a better way because I had asked people what I should do and their, their recommendation was to intern at galleries. And so I went through that phase of interning at galleries. I became very frustrated. And um, after 9-11, uh, it was uh, life out of balance in New York and everything that I had gone there for creatively had ended up disappearing and turning into kind of this George W. Bush post 9-11 um, Islamophobia and uh, military vibe that I really didn't, 
I didn't go to New York for that. I went there for like the fantasy of being a famous artist in New York. So I got fed up with New York at that particular moment. And in October 2001, after witnessing 9-11, I left New York and I went back to Victoria. I went uh, into a studio there that I had been in previously. And um, I made, started making a series of paintings. I eventually had an exhibition at the Vancouver Art Gallery of those paintings, which was a museum show that I had 14 paintings and drawings in, which was very exciting. And then I be, started getting fed up with um, Victoria, and I was feeling very marginalized. So I started cold calling galleries in New York, and I got through to one gallery after sending out hundreds of random emails with attachments of my paintings. The gallery was called Jack the Pelican Presents, and it was located in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and it was run by a guy named Don Carroll. And they had a booth at Scope Art Fair, and they wanted to show my work at Scope Art Fair. So they invited me to New York to show at Scope Art Fair. Um, and the way that I found out that they wanted to do that is that I checked my junk mail and their email had gone into my junk mail. I just happened to not delete my junk mail and there was this invitation in New York. So it was very kind of happenstance. Um, so I went to New York and while, and while I was there, my friend had an opening um, at 303 Gallery. Um, it was an artist by the name of Tim Gardner, who's a watercolorist. He had an opening at 303 Gallery. And at his opening, I met someone by the name of Carter Foster. And uh, he was the curator of prints and drawings at the Whitney Museum at that particular time. And he invited me to the Whitney because I had been traveling with my drawings for the show. And he invited me to the Whitney to show him all of my drawings. So I went to the Whitney. I had an appointment with him. And I put all my drawings out in his office at at the Whitney and we had a nice conversation and he was trying he was saying how northern renaissance the the works were in that particular series and then what ended up happening is uh, Jack the Pelican had their booth at Scope Art Fair I had um, shipped a bunch of frame drawings to the gallery and the drawings were not on the wall when I arrived at the art fair they were nowhere to be seen and so I said where are the drawings that I that I shipped. And he said, oh, we have them right down here behind the desk or whatever. So I was quite angry because I traveled all the way there for this show and the work wasn't on the wall in the middle of the opening of the art fair. And sure enough, I run into the curator of drawings from the Whitney at the art fair and I said, oh, you have to come over and see my drawings at this gallery. So I brought him over to the gallery, introduced him as the curator of drawings from the Whitney. And then five minutes later, all of my drawings were on the wall in the booth. And I think the explanation for that is that I was basically coming from what you could call left field, you know, the far reaches of Canada. Nobody had ever heard of me. And although the work was good, they needed, it just needed that a little bit of, of a kind of a uh, judgment and support from the museum community or the local collector community or the gallery community for them to want to like put the work on the wall. So that was kind of like um, what they would call a teaching moment for me. Um, and then 
I went back to Canada and I was still working on the same series of work that I had shown at that point in the art fair. Um, this was all before 2007. This was, I'm talking maybe 2005. Um, and then what ended up happening after that is um, I got an email from Jan van Wunzel and um, I had no idea who he was, but I got this email from him. Um, I, I kind of skipped ahead, but it was in relation to White Hot Magazine, which was basically an art magazine that I started. And um, I started the art magazine as a way to try to demarginalize myself. Um, because what had happened to me was I brought a series of the same paintings I had shown in, at the art fair in New York. I had brought them to um, uh, Miami. And I was showing these drawings at several different galleries in Miami. And at the end of the art fair, the dealer said, oh, aren't you taking these pieces back to New York with you? And so I had to shove all of my drawings and paintings into my suitcase really quickly. And I got very depressed and I decided to quit art entirely. And I spent a month drinking absinthe and growing a beard and staring at the wall and not talking to any of my art friends. And I decided that I would start an art magazine because I got the idea that all that the artists or the dealers care about is whether they get a sentence in Art Forum or not at the end of everything. They don't, they're not really that concerned with anything but their own egos and reputations. And it was a little bit of almost like a nervous breakdown moment where I was feeling a lot of malice for the world and I thought that the solution was to go into art publishing, which is a completely insane idea because um, it's kind of impossible to imagine starting an art magazine brand that has any kind of competitiveness or any kind of um, level of, say, Art Forum or Art in America or Art News or the, or the sort of, um, you know, titanic brands that were already doing that for years and years. And above and beyond that, the system is, didn't want it. What, what the, system, the art system was saying at that point is, if you're writing about art, then you're an artist publishing an artist blog. You're not a magazine. So you can write about art on the web as much as you want, but you're not, you're not an authority on it. We're the authority, and anybody publishing or writing about art on the web is just a blog. So I had to be faced with the idea of how I was going to find a kind of an, an, a sort of authority. And one of the ideas that I had was uh, I was looking at Murakami and I was looking at Spencer Tunick, um, two people that I didn't know personally. Later on, I ended up knowing Spencer personally, but I was looking at how they were dealing with maybe thousands of people, like Murakami had 200 employees at his studio and Spencer was dealing with thousands of people. And I was thinking, I really need to expand the number of, the volume of people that I'm working with because I'm just sitting here with my painting and my easel 
and I don't have a hundred employees working at my art studio, I was like, well, I'll just work with as many writers as I can. I'll try to work. So I ended up, I ended up having 500 or more, 600 writers write articles for me. But what ended up happening is at that particular moment, the paradigm shift was such that um, physical publishing was dying out, or at least it was the first time that they experienced the phenomenon of physical publishing being challenged by digital publishing. And people, people were, there, there was a paper company that had gone out of business because they, they weren't being hired to print enough newspapers to uh, be able to keep their printing press. Uh, this was actually a paper making company, not a printing press. So they were making massive rolls of newsprint at this paper company. I believe it was up in British Columbia. I don't remember exactly where, but, but USA Today, which was a, a daily newspaper, had lowered their volume of print newspapers there was a newspaper in Texas that had gone completely out of business and I was seeing articles where they were saying the internet is good. This was like in 2005, 2006. And they were saying the internet is challenging the newspaper and magazine industry and people are getting their news and their information on the internet. And that's going to be the new thing and physical newspapers and magazines are going to be a thing of the past. And then I thought, okay, so I want to start an art magazine and that's happening in the news world. I bet you this is going to happen in the art world. And the art world is too consumed with their own small scene to actually be thinking about things in terms of like something visionary and something pioneering. They're thinking more in terms of just what they've been doing and the parameters of how they can expand into different ideas were limited and I didn't really have those limitations because I wasn't tied to an organization in that kind of way or a corporate structure. So I started, uh, initially I got the idea that I was going to make something that would be kind of like an art world version of Craigslist where there were different cities and in those cities would be like you know, like free art supplies for sale or artist studio for rent or whatever it was. And it would be like kind of, so I just started out with a white screen, a wet blank piece of paper and I, I drew a sketch. That was the other thing I wanted. I wanted to do something that was kind of like also almost like a conceptual piece at the same time. And I didn't actually have designs uh, on it to become an actual magazine. Um, it was something that um, started almost as a conceptual piece and accidentally caught on in a way that was much bigger than I had anticipated. And it was kind of one of those, we're having a baby moments, we better raise this baby kind of, kind of feeling. Um, and so I started out with a white piece of paper and I wrote, a circle of city names on the piece of paper. And I took it to a computer programmer and I said, I want a white computer screen with these city names on it. And I consulted with my mom and I said, well, what should I call this thing? And she said, well, look at Amazon. What does Amazon have to do with selling books and items on a computer? It doesn't 
doesn't exactly say like online bookstore or something like that. Why don't you, you could just call it whatever you want to call it. And then I thought, um, well, I'm interested in Andy Warhol and the Velvet Underground, and I saw a song that they did that was like White Light, White Heat. So I kind of thought something in, in that area. And then I also thought about like, there's a lot of galleries like White Cube and White Box and White Columns. And um, there's a lot of, like sort of the, the Beatles White Album, different like thing. I sort of like that aesthetic of that kind of conceptual aesthetic of like Yoko Ono. And, and at that time, Apple was putting out a lot of project, products that were just like kind of white on white computer appliances and different things like that. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to kind of like have that feeling to it at first? So I just had this white screen with city names. And then I said, okay, well then you click on these city names and you go into this area and that city is where this art writer is. And that can expand. And there's going to be no graphics that animate, no flash animation, because a lot of websites, you'd go to it and there'd be like some kind of big animated intro, and then you'd go, you know, and somebody else said, oh, do it as a PDF magazine, and I just kind of stuck to it and did a magazine that was sort of based on this idea, and then eventually those city names became squares that had photos in them, because I had this idea, like what I was trying to do was create a virtual magazine on the web. And um, if it was an art magazine, I remember people having like next in the bathroom or something at a gallery, there would be a big stack of art forum magazines. Or in the library at the art school that I went to, there would be a, a big stack of uh, art forums or whatever. And I would read them, and one would be from 1978 or something like that. But it didn't matter as long as it had pictures of Rothko and Jackson Pollock and Francis Bacon. I didn't, I didn't care. I would read those magazines whenever they came out. So I thought, well, what if this was kind of almost like that, like a stack of images of different like issues or articles? And, it, and after a while, if you scrolled through them, it wouldn't matter when they were done. It's just kind of like a bunch of art material for people that want to read about art. So my point is I had some really kind of struggles with the sort of layout and the functionality of it. And that's been a big thing is like trying to figure out the mechanics of an online magazine. And so I perfected it and changed it as time went on. And it's still, still updating and updating it. And so after all of that, where I was traumatized and I started this online art magazine, it was in its very infancy. That's when I got an email from Jan. I had skipped forward to that earlier, but I got a message from Jan. He explained that he was a curator and he wanted to create a magazine festival in New York. And um, he explained the breakdown of how the festival would happen and how it related to the magazine. Um, and then he explained more about it later on. And what it was is uh, we were parking you uh, rider trucks at different locations around the Lower East Side in New York, because at that time the New York gallery scene, especially on the Lower East Side, was a new gallery district that was just kind of pioneering spaces and galleries. And uh, Jan was obviously very aware of what was going on in New York at that time because he was involved in the New York art world and I was just kind of out in Canada um, 
and um, he suggested that we attach ourselves to the Lower East Side gallery scene and expand the magazine through a curated uh, White Hot Magazine festival. So the trucks had live interviews in one truck, another truck had live music, and there were stickers for White Hot Magazine that we would put on multiple gallery front windows. Simultaneously to all of this, kind of unbeknownst to me, um, NADA Art Fair, which is the New Art Dealers Alliance, was very Lower East Side centric and many of their members were involved with the galleries that were associated with the White Hot Magazine um, festival curated by Jan van Wunsel. So at that point, NADA Art Fair was in Miami at the Ice Palace Film Studios and it was invite only and Shortly after we did the White Hot Magazine Festival in New York, White Hot Magazine got an email from Nada Art Fair, uh, and we got an invitation to go to Miami, at which point I uh, mentioned it to Jan. He organized art by uh, Lee Ronaldo and Leah Singer. Um, Lee Ronaldo is the guitar player from Sonic Youth. Leah Singer is his wife who's also an artist that works with video and drawing and different materials. And they showed um, their work, which was like prints and drawings. And um, in the booth that Jan and I ran at NADA Art Fair, which was a publications booth in the publications section of NADA. So after that, um, Jan went back to whatever he was doing and I was out of touch with him for a while. He was um, still in New York for a period of time and then he went to other places. Um, and I was still going to Miami and I went to Miami every year for 10 years after that and did uh, magazine related parties and magazine related art fairs. And then after um, that period of time, it was around 2010, because the magazine festival was in 2007. And in 2010, I decided to leave Victoria again and move back to New York. And I spent a decade in New York doing VIP parties and my own Whitehall Magazine party and having art shows, painting in a studio in Brooklyn, and doing everything that you would imagine people would do in New York for 10 or 11 years. And then um, I produced a movie, a documentary called New York Is Now, which is, um, covers uh, 38 different artists and writers and um, curators in New York, where we went around with a camera and filmed them. And um, then, um, that was maybe 11 years, and then, uh, and, then it was, um, and then it was COVID. COVID happened, and lockdown happened in New York, and I went back to Victoria again. So a lot of what I've been doing has been going between Victoria and New York, and then back to Victoria, and then back to New York, and it's been a back and forth kind of lifestyle over the years in different ways. Um, so yeah, so COVID happened. I started doing NFTs, during COVID, which most of you know is non-fungible tokens. And I got really, really involved in, in NFTs. And I was um, communicating with a number of people who had anonymous identities, but we were doing NFT-related stuff. 
and uh, digital art and conceptual NFTs and other things that were um, are almost kind of like an art world aspect of NFTs that people were not pursuing at the time. Um, and eventually uh, I started traveling again. I traveled to New York recently where I was in a group show with, uh, that was themed around Anna Delvey. The, if you remember, Anna Delvey was the, uh, has a Netflix show out about being the fake heiress. Um, some people have seen it, but it's a very pop, kind of a big pop cultural moment. So I've been interacting with Anna Delvey. I'd, she was on a podcast of mine, and um, she is uh, doing a solo show that a friend of mine is curating in New York. And I've kept in touch with her uh, uh, regularly since interacting with her. Um, and then uh, I was in Victoria, and I had gone to New York recently to do some things with um, the Anna Delvey exhibition and communicate with her in prison. And then um, around earlier than that, um, Jan had invited me to Pilsen, and I accepted the invitation. And uh, after going to New York, I went back to Victoria, and then uh, I came to Czech Republic. And uh, here we are at the opening of my exhibition and the residency. So that's kind of a winding story, but that's the, the basis of it. Mm -hmm.